Teenaged girl dragged across the snow in violent arrest in the Northwest Territories. Homeless Newfoundlander lives on $175 a month. Zombie fires burning at an alarming rate in Canada. Israeli attacks render Gaza's Nasser Hospital completely out of service. And Ukraine's forces withdraw from key eastern town after months of fighting. Good morning. It's Monday, February 19th. I'm Nora. Here are your headlines. We start this morning in Béchocon, Northwest Territories, where two RCMP officers are being questioned in how they treated a teenage girl while they arrested her on February 9th. The police dragged the 16-year-old across the snow, and it was caught on camera. She'd refused to come home with the officers, and they pulled her, first from a sitting position and then dragging her across the snow, such that she almost lost her shirt and pants. They then lifted her into a cop car. The CBC story from Luke Carroll reports that CBC decided to share the video of the arrest, but they are not revealing the identity of the girl due to her age. Here's what she said happened. She was intoxicated and she was with an ex and his friend at their house. Police showed up while they were arguing and they said that she was being beaten up by the boys. She denied that they were beating her up. The cops had been nearby and heard someone say that there was a fight and that's how they ended up at the apartment. Then she said she tried to leave and the boys and the police stopped her from leaving the apartment. She claimed that a cop pulled her by the hair and the cops claimed that she punched one of them in the face. None of this was caught on video. And the girl says that she can't really remember if she quote unquote swung at an officer, but she was barely able to stand. She was so intoxicated. And so had she hit the officer, she was clearly not in a good spot and shouldn't have been arrested so violently. She was then held for 13 hours in a cell where they waited for her to sober up. Carol talks to one lawyer who points out that as a minor, she should have been taken home, not to a jail cell. Next, to a Canadian press story about how those on government income support services are increasingly ending up living in tents or in homeless encampments. Reporter Sarah Smelly from the Canadian Press profiles a man named Colin Young, who lives in an emergency shelter in St. John's. He receives $175 per month on top of meals through the province's income support program. According to the story, Young is grateful for the assistance. Previously, he was sleeping in tents and a downtown parking garage after being evicted from his last apartment in 2021. But $175 per month isn't enough to help him get a job and secure permanent housing. I mean, obviously. Young is quoted as saying this, quote, I'd be able to get clean shoes. I'd be able to take care of myself. I'd be able to go out and actually get a job, look productive in society. How can you save up a damage deposit if you only get $87 every two weeks, unquote. Smiley explains that the country's housing advocate, Marie-Josée Houle, monitors Canada's progress upholding housing as a human right, which the federal government officially recognized in 2019. Last week, Uhl released a sweeping report about the spread of homeless encampments across the country, calling the situation a national life and death crisis of human rights. The report made dozens of recommendations, including that provinces increase income supports and minimum wages to reflect the high cost of living and allow for successful transitions to adequate housing solutions, unquote. 
The story references Lucas Groltz, the coordinator of downtown Halifax Navigator Outreach Program, who says that increasing income support would make a tangible difference for people living in tent encampments. Groltz explains that many of his clients are homeless because they couldn't afford rent hikes, often after rent evictions. Even rent at boarding houses, which he described as quote-unquote cockroach motels, has doubled in the past few years. One of Groltz's clients, Bradley Lowe, was in the midst of a court battle over Nova Scotia's income support rates when he died at an encampment in December. Lowe was receiving $380 per month, the standard payment for someone without a home. He had argued that he should be eligible for $950 per month, the standard rate for people with disabilities who live in a household. Turning to British Columbia and the scary phenomenon of so-called zombie fires. BBC's Nadine Youssef writes that even in the dead of Canada's winter, the embers of last year's record-setting wildfire season remain, and these zombie fires are burning at an unprecedented rate, raising fears about what the coming summer may bring. Youssef explains that embers are kept alive thanks to a peat moss common in North America's boreal forest and to thick layers of snow that insulate them from the cold. The story references Sonia Leverkus, a firefighter and scientist, who recalls driving during a snowstorm in her hometown of Nelson in November. Quote, I've never experienced a snowstorm that smelled like smoke, unquote. These plumes were visible into February, even on days when temperatures had plummeted to minus 40 degrees. And these fires are not unusual. Yusuf writes that in the past 10 years, British Columbia has, on average, seen five or six zombie fires that continue to burn during the cold months. But in January, the province saw an unprecedented peak of 106 active zombie fires, raising concern among the scientists about what these fires will mean for the upcoming wildfire season. Most typically go out on their own before the spring, but 91 are still burning in BC, according to provincial data, and those that are not extinguished by March could reignite once the snow melts and they are exposed to air. Because of this, scientists have linked them to early starts of wildfire seasons. Yusuf reminds us that more than 18 million hectares of land were burned by wildfires in Canada in 2023, an area roughly the size of Cambodia. The season was among the most fatal in recent history. Next, while liberals are still upset over a pro-Palestinian guy climbing on a hospital entrance while dressed like Spider-Man in Toronto, Israeli ground and airstrikes have now rendered Gaza's second largest hospital non-operational. Al Jazeera explains that the besieged enclave's Ministry of Health and World Health Organization on Sunday said that the Nasser complex in Khan Yunus is no longer functioning after a weeks-long siege followed by deadly raids. There are only four medical staffers currently caring for patients there, according to a ministry spokesperson. On Twitter, WHO Chief Tedros Ghebreyesus said the organization's team had not been permitted by the Israeli military to enter the hospital since Friday to assess the condition of critical patients and medical needs, even though they reached the hospital along with partners to deliver fuel. Ghebreyesus says this, quote, There are still about 200 patients at the hospital. At least 20 need to be urgently referred to other hospitals to receive health care. Medical referral is every patient's right. The cost of delays will be paid by the patient's lives, unquote. In the past few days, Israeli soldiers have raided the hospital where displaced Palestinians were also sheltering. The health ministry on Saturday said that Israeli forces, quote, arrested a large number of the directors and staff, unquote, of the hospital while they tended to the wounded. 
Meanwhile, Al Amal Hospital, the only other major medical facility still operational in Khan Yunus, continues to be a target of Israeli attacks. The Palestinian Red Crescent Society on Sunday said Israeli forces targeted the third floor of the hospital with artillery fire. Remember back in October when the Al-Adhi Hospital compound was attacked, killing hundreds, and Israel denied responsibility? And Zionists were like, Israel would never attack a hospital. Well, I mean, Christ. And turning to the war in Ukraine, Russian forces have taken complete control of the Ukrainian city of Avdivka, Russia's defense ministry has announced. Ilya Novikov and Barry Hatton report for the Associated Press that Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu told the Kremlin that Russian forces were now working to clear the final pockets of resistance at the Avdivka Coke and Chemical Plant. Videos on social media on Saturday appeared to show soldiers raising the Russian flag over one of the plant's buildings. The announcement came the same day that Ukraine's military chief said that he was withdrawing troops from the city where outnumbered Ukrainians battled a Russian assault for four months. Novikov and Hatton write that the timing is critical as Russia is looking for a morale boost ahead of the second anniversary of the invasion and the March presidential election in Russia. In a short statement posted on Facebook, Ukrainian commander Colonel General Oleksandr Sersky said that he made the decision to avoid encircling them and, quote, preserve the lines and health of servicemen, unquote. The withdrawal came a day after Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky made another trip to Western Europe, hoping to press Western allies to keep providing military support. White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby said last week that Avdivka is at risk of falling to Russia, a development he blamed, quote, in very large part, unquote, on the fact that Ukrainian forces are running out of artillery ammunition. The United States is Ukraine's biggest single supporter, but some $60 billion for Kiev is being held up in Congress. CBC is reporting that Canadian Defense Minister Bill Blair says NATO countries like Canada must ramp up their aid to Ukraine to fill in the gap. However much we might feel for the Ukrainian civilians and those conscripted to fight this war, it's getting increasingly difficult to sell the idea that Ukraine is winning the war, despite the billions in military aid from North America. The war will most likely end with a negotiated settlement. I mean, people have been saying this from the start. Even our own national defense minister said this more than a year ago. That couldn't be more obvious. And the longer this goes on, the more people that die for no reason at all, the less this will become supportable. If we consider that Canada is giving people $175 who are living out in camps in the winter to be able to fund our military commitments like these, it stops making any sense whatsoever. And so it'll be interesting to see whether or not our politicians pivot and start talking about diplomacy, or if they will continue to talk about the war machine and how much ammunition and ammunition and ammunition we can keep sending to Ukraine. Those are your headlines for Monday, February 19th. I'm Nora. I hope you're having a good holiday if you live in part of Canada that has a holiday. I do not. And so I'm about to have my favorite workday of the year. You are listening to this podcast at sandyandnor.com on the Real News Network podcast feed and anywhere you get your podcasts. Production assistance for this episode, thanks to Mary Newman. I will talk to you tomorrow.